And it's a joy to sing unto the Lord together, is it not? But as we worship, we must remember that we are just as vile as the murderous thief. Thieves. They were on each side of the Lord when he was crucified. One went on into everlasting life in the presence of Jesus Christ. For Jesus said to him, Most assuredly I say to do, today, to you today you will be with me in paradise. And the other, because of the rejection of Christ, is an eternal torment. Both sinners, both thieves, both murderers, one was in Christ, one was not. And for those of you in Christ here today, as we work our way through three short verses in the Bible, may we keep in mind the great price that was prayed, paid as we prepare to come to the Lord's table at the end of service. Amen? The memorial of the Lord, the broken body, the shed blood that deems you righteous, pure, forgiven, cleansed, atoned for of the household of faith, of the kingdom. If you're not in Christ this morning, you are still with war with God. You are at war with Him. He's at war with you. There's the sin that separates you. But there's a great offer here today, so I encourage you to pay great attention to the word of the living God this morning. We are, if you are visiting, we first of all welcome you, but we are in the midst of a study of John's Gospel. We are in chapter 7. And what this will reveal for us, we've already seen signs of it, and it's increasing antagonism towards Christ from the religious leaders of the day, the Sanhedrin, the more claims Jesus makes about himself, the greater the hostility. This morning we will witness the climactic event that will be the cause for division within the crowds of religious activity that's going on here in John 7, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. It will expose the envy and the rage within the hearts of the pious Jewish leaders. Now, the leaders were already outraged with Jesus because in their minds he had broken the law by healing a man on the Sabbath. They accused Jesus of being a violator of the Sabbath. Jesus stated that his teaching was given to him by God the Father, that his teaching was not of an earthly origin. Jesus taught with authority that no man ever had or will ever have. They were awestruck by the authority of Jesus Christ as he taught in the temple. Jesus went on to claim equality with God. And if that wasn't enough to set him off, he will now go on to cry out in the temple that if these religious people have a true thirst for God, which they appeared to have, that He alone was the only quenchable source available. That He is it. That indeed all roads do not lead to God. It is Jesus Christ alone that leads to everlasting life. 
But Jesus will go on here this morning to compare man's greatest spiritual needs by relating to his most necessary physical needs. And in this case, Jesus points to man's greatest necessity of survival, that of water. Without water, you die. In our day and age here, it's the unnecessary desires and comforts of the body and life that are often mistaken for needs here in Western civilization. Amen? Cars are all of a sudden a need. Houses are a need. Bigger houses are a need. Prominence is a need. Affluence is a need. And once you're 40, plastic surgery is a need if you live in Southern California. <laughs> but we've attempted in this culture at least, to gain joy through the purchase of property, a lucrative career, a certain circle of friends, activities, a life-size television, an annual vacation, new laptop, and other short-lived pleasures. There's others, on the other hand, that have purposefully or religiously rejected such luxuries in a vain attempt to gain God's favor to even appear to be more spiritual than those within their religious sphere of influence. All the while attempting to achieve joy by the legalistic lack of activity or a monastic mindset. Mindset of separation. Separating oneself from the luxuries of life. But as John Piper has wisely written, I quote, that we have accustomed ourselves to such meager, short-lived pleasures that our capacity for joy has shriveled. And so our worship has shriveled. End quote. True joy and fulfillment is not gained by materialism, riches, any more than it is gained by those who neglect owning those luxuries for the sake of attempting to find favor in the sight of God. Neither one will produce joy. True joy, true fulfillment, and satisfaction come from drinking in the words of life, the very presence of God's Spirit. It's the only source of everlasting joy. Who alone takes away the frustrated soul thirst and turns you into a fountain where others can receive the same blessing. And to learn how to be that, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7. And I encourage you, I invite you to come and drink in Christ as we look at verses 37 to 39. Verse 37. This Feast of Tabernacles is going on. Jesus is in the temple. He came in halfway through the feast, about the third or fourth day, and he began to preach. He began to preach with authority. And he told all those religious people that the God they think they know, they don't know. Verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified please join me in prayer father thank you for your eternal glorious 
authoritative, heart-piercing word. And I ask, Lord, that this morning you would do a surgical work in each one of us as we believers prepare to come to your table in remembrance of what you have done on our behalf. I pray, Lord, that your church, those in Christ this morning, would be greatly built up in the faith with a deeper hunger, a greater thirst for you, for your word, so that your Holy Spirit would manifest yourself in and through us in a great and mighty way. The streams of loving water will flow out of us for your glory. And anyone here, Lord, this morning who does not yet know you, we, we ask that you would do a glorious, great work to draw them unto yourself, to convict them of sin, to reveal to them the separation that sets them away from you eternally, that you'll birth life into them this morning. They would come to true saving faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The feast that Jesus is at is the Feast of Tabernacles. There were three feasts which were major feasts of Israel. It was Passover, the second was Pentecost, and the third was the Feast of Tabernacles. Passover was to commemorate the manner in which the Lord had spared the Israelites, if you recall. As the angel of death passed over the homes of all the Egyptians to where the eldest of every home would die that night. But as the Israelites would put to death the lamb and sprinkle its blood on the doorpost and the lentil, when the angel of death came, it would pass over those who were covered by the blood. Just as the judgment of Christ, the judgment of Almighty God, passes over those who are in Christ because they're covered by His blood. The Last Supper in the upper room was known as the Passover meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. Jesus is described in the New Testament as our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. He's known as the lamb who was slain in Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. So there's the first feast, the feast of Passover. The second was Pentecost, or the, the Feast of Weeks. It occurred 50 days after the Sabbath of Passover. So after the Sabbath of Passover, 50 days later, would come Pentecost. And his primary focus was an expression of gratitude to God for the wheat harvest. And that would take place in late spring, early summer. In Acts 2, it was when it was on the day of Pentecost that suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they, the disciples, were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. So there's a second feast. The third is where we are here in John 7. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. And that was established as a memorial to the wandering in the wilderness of the Israelites where water and food were in short supply. Now, at this time, the people would come in from all of Palestine, all areas surrounding Jerusalem. They would ascend up to the city and they would celebrate these feasts. The Feast of Tabernacles, what they would do is they would erect these little huts, these little tabernacles. Tabernacle means tent or a dwelling place. They would make them out of sticks and branches and they would sleep in those little huts for seven days to remember how God provided for them in the wilderness. 
They would look up and see the stars. They would feel the wind blow through in the evening. Even upon their homes, on the roofs of their homes which were flat, they would erect these small huts and they would sleep under these huts for seven days. Feast of Tabernacles. So this week was a time of final celebration and thanksgiving for the the year's harvest. So as the seventh and last annual feast, there were seven feasts throughout the year that were celebrated, three that were mandatory that all Jewish meals attended within a 20-mile radius. This was the seventh and the last, and it represented the Sabbath principle. So this is really a great, great celebration. It was the last day, or the greatest day, of the last feast of the year, which would kind of mark the end of the whole rotation of the festival year. So it was a great time of celebration. That's where Jesus is. He's at the Feast of Tabernacles. He's at the temple. He already came in midweek and he preached and he proclaimed truth about himself. Now here it is, the last day of that seven-day feast. Turn back to Leviticus chapter 23 to where we'll get an idea as to the commandments of this feast. We'll begin in verse 33, Leviticus chapter 23. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. The seventh month was the month of October, the first month being April. First month, April, was Passover. Seventh month, October, actually 15th to the 22nd, would have been um, Tabernacles. Verse 36, For seven days you shall offer an offering made by, the fire, made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an, an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. Look down at verse 39. Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and then the eighth day a Sabbath rest. Verse 40, And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of the beautiful trees, branches of palm trees and boughs and leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Verse 42, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your, generation, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now this feast, as I said, was celebrated in the midst of a great assembly of people, very festive, great time of thanksgiving, held in the month of Tishri, October. Now, scholars are split on whether the last day of the feast was the seventh day or that eighth day. Okay? It doesn't really matter. And we're not going to get into all of that. But whether the last day of the feast was the seventh or the day, or the eighth, It's not super clear, so why spend a lot of time on it, amen? There were all kinds of interesting traditions that went on with these feasts. Now at this time, the people would come together every day, 
The men would hold out uh, willow branches, uh, myrtle twigs, and they would be attached, attached to, a, to a palm. And they would hold that in their right hand. And then in their left hand, they would hold out um, citrus fruit. And they would wave these things. They would do this once a day during the festival. They'd march around the altar once a day for seven days. On the seventh day, they marched around the altar holding these things up seven times. In remembrance of what? Marching around Jericho. Once a day for seven days. On the seventh day, they marched around seven times. And after the seventh time, the walls of Jericho fell and they overtook the city. So here they are. In the midst of all this, a tradition had grown. On, the, on each day of the feast, the priests from the temple would walk in procession down to the Pool of Siloam. Two locations throughout history. One was north of the temple, outside down the Kidron Valley. Later on, it was south of the temple, within the city walls, but it was fed by the same spring. So whatever one it was, it doesn't matter. That's where they went. They went to the Pool of Siloam in a great procession. These priests in their, in their priestly robes, with, they would carry down an empty golden vessel down to the Pool of Siloam. And the water of the Pool of Siloam was regarded as sacred. That's interesting as we get to John 9. The man that was born blind for no sin that he committed, but that the glory of God would be revealed. Jesus spit in the mud makes clay, wipes it in his eyes, and he instructs the man to go where? To the pool of Siloam and wash. And the man does, and he sees. They would fill up this golden vessel, and then they would march back up through the water gate into the temple, while the people would recite Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. It says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. While the priest would march in underneath the, the, the extended palm branches finally pouring out the water upon the altar, calling to memory the great provision of God that He made for Israel, granting them water from a rock. Remember Exodus 17, all the congregation of the children of Israel sat out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, and the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Behold, the Lord said, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. Jesus, God Almighty, instructed Moses to strike that rock, and water would come forth. Later on, the Lord told Moses to, what? Speak to the rock, but he struck the rock. He was frustrated with the people. And God judged him for it, and he wasn't able to enter the promised land that he led these rebels through the wilderness with for 40 years anyway. There's a price to, to leadership, amen? This was also a time to offer prayers up to the Lord for rainfall, for the upcoming harvest season. So, on this last day, they would draw water from Siloam, dwelling in these booths, that would come to an end. They would dismantle those booths at the end of the last day. So at the height of celebration here, there's great excitement and then they would go on and recite Psalm 118, verse 25 that says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. So here they are worshiping God, thanking God in, in, in remembrance of how He provided water in the wilderness as well as praying, lifting up petitions to the Lord that He will provide 
proper rainfall to sustain them. So this offering of water is mainly memorialized the provision of God for thirsty people in the wilderness. And it is here that the climax of controversy comes in verse 37. It's on that last day, the greatest day of feast. Now imagine this. Jesus, the master of metaphorical language, perhaps at that very moment, here's these priests marching up. They have this golden vessel. It's filled with water from the pool of Siloam. They're chanting. They're, 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 they're reciting psalms. The people are waving the willow branches. They would be the men, actually. would be waving these willow branches. They'd be holding up the fruit. They would come in underneath these raised branches, pour the water out on the altar. And perhaps it was at that very moment that Jesus stood, verse 37, and cried out. Verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Can you imagine that? Because Jesus' timing is always perfect. Always perfect. Master of metaphors. And then he throws that out there. Now the first thing to notice here is that Jesus stood. One characteristic of a rabbi, of a teacher, was that when he would teach, he would do what? He would sit. When the teachers would come into the temple, they would sit down. Students would come around and they would listen. When he sat, he was getting ready to speak. Everyone would quiet down and they would listen. Jesus is standing. So the verb means that Jesus was standing rather than he rose to his feet. He's already standing. So Jesus here standing now becomes a herald. A bearer of news. He's making pronouncement here. And he cried out, which is a verb used as an eruption of protest. Earlier, you, remember, you recall when Jesus preached? He says, you say you know me? You don't know me. The very religious people of the day claiming to know God, claiming to know Him, claiming to know where He's from. He says, you don't know where I'm from. But now it's used in the form of an invitation. He stands and he cries out. So Jesus wanted to make himself and his claims known to the entire crowd in the attendance, that, that were in attendance. Now, it's interesting that the Jews' attention would have, be, would have been fixed upon these priests. Now just imagine, they come in through this procession, they pour out this water, Jesus is standing, he cries out, and all heads and all bodies turn to Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, if you thirst, you want to be satisfied, you must come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, he says, let him come unto me and drink. It was as if he was saying here, don't you realize that this water points to me in addition to the rock from which it came. He is that rock. He is that water. You know, all of these reminders as to the sustained life of your ancestors in the wilderness have no vital significance apart from me, he says. Apostle Paul took the same image and applied it to Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. How was Israel led through the wilderness? By a cloud? And by a pillar of fire at night. Amen? Cloud by day? 
pillar of fire by night. All passed through the sea. They came through the Red Sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. God provided manna from heaven. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. It is also here that we see the unchanging outline of the gospel. Three words that define the gospel. Thirst, come, and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. But at this feast, the Jews were reenacting a tradition that could never satisfy the heart. Could never satisfy the internal thirst. Jesus goes on to offer them living water and eternal satisfaction. Notice, Jesus now appeals to the individual. If who? If anyone. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. There's three points in your bulletin. Offer, outcome, and occupant which will be our focus this morning. Let's look at number one, the offer. Anyone, this is an open invitation to all who thirst to come and drink. Anyone. Who is it that becomes thirsty? Physically speaking. Everyone, right? Everyone becomes thirsty. Everyone needs water. Therefore, spiritually speaking, we see the general call, the, the, the outward call to come goes out to all. To anyone. Anyone who thirsts and all that thirst, they may come. Today it's the same invitation. This is the same invitation that should be heralded from every true Christian pulpit. This is the same invitation that bear the faithful witness of Jesus Christ that must be proclaimed. Thirst, come and drink. So that anyone, that anyone who Jesus advice, invites must have a thirst. They must be thirsty. Now, one thing that's absolutely essential in the physical realm is the need for water. Amen? We can all testify to that. You have a need for water. All people of all time throughout all places have a need for water. And they therefore become thirsty. Now, physical thirst is the most powerful force there is. There's nothing more powerful than that. Human beings can survive days without food. Without shelter. Depending on the temperature. They can survive even longer without social activity, without comfort, without happiness, without family, without friends. But no one lives very long without water. When a person becomes thirsty, I mean truly thirsty, lost in the desert kind of thirsty, they will do anything and everything possible to find water. It becomes a driving obsession. You'll be sidetracked by nothing. Amen? Nothing will sidetrack you when you're this thirsty. You'll be willing to sell your most valued possession for a pitcher of cold water when you're that parched, when you're dying of thirst. So, metaphorically speaking, all men, in some sense, are thirsty. And that's the symbol that Jesus uses here. Instead of physical water, Jesus offers spiritual water. Instead of ceremony, He offers certainty. And it's only Jesus Christ, it's only God and human flesh that can make this offer. All roads do not lead to God. That's a lie 
from where? The pit of hell. <laughs> Come on, somebody. So Jesus sees these religious Jews as appearing to be thirsty. They're involved in heavy, celebratory, religious activity. They got it down. They're good at it. They don't realize that he what they were, is what they were truly thirsting for. He's standing right there. So this is the symbol that Jesus uses here. To the one who's obsessed, restless, desperate for satisfaction. Many people are desperately seeking satisfaction. Internal satisfaction. Meaning. Many people want the release of guilt that has gripped them their entire lives. Shame. They're frantically searching for this release of sin. They want it lifted. They're searching, they're seeking, they can't find rest. Their soul is at war. They feel there's war. They feel tension. The war that they sense is the war that they have with God. And that God has with them because He's holy. They want to be freed from that. They want to be satisfied. They're longing. They're thirsting. And they know not for what. They may say they're seeking God. These people were seeking God. They were seeking religious activity that pointed to God. As a matter of fact, it pointed to Jesus Christ. They didn't know it. Mark read from Psalm 143 this morning. Verse 6 says, I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land. The psalmist says regarding God. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you. Oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The living God. Not the figment of one's imagination, God, amen, small g. The living God. Jesus is saying that it is He alone who satisfies the deep longings of man. No thing, no person, no place, no activity, no, no title, none of it will satisfy. Those are all temporary. They all die. They fizzle out. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What's the guarantee? They shall be filled. Jesus has already claimed to be the bread and the water of life. In John 6, 35, he spoke of being the very bread of life. To the woman at the well, back in John chapter 4, verse 10, he spoke of being living water, who's the very gift of God. The one who quenches that thirst. What is thirst? Thirst is a recognized need. No one has to inform you that you're thirsty. Amen? You don't have to. They can tell you you're dehydrated. They can tell you you're near death if you don't drink. But they don't have to tell you you're thirsty. This is that longing for hope. That longing for joy. For love. For forgiveness. For meaning. For peace. And if, if this invitation goes out to anyone. It goes out to all. However, big however, mark it down, however, it is only the thirsty that Jesus presents the offer to come. Anyone who what? Thirst may what? May come. Come here is an action. To come. It's the responsibility of getting up and approaching an object or a person. 
It's an expressed action. It's an act of faith. And what is faith? Nothing one has in and of themselves. It is a gift of God, lest any man boast. This is a turning away from all self-confidence, all self-righteousness, all sinful rebellion, to come and fall down at the very fountain of life. And repentance, submission, full surrender. But a warning goes out here. It's important that we understand what Jesus doesn't say in this passage. He does not say, come to communion and be saved. He does not say, come and be baptized and be saved. He does not say, come to the pastor. He does not say, come and join the church. He does not say even this, come to the gospel. You must come to Christ. The author, the essence, and the fulfillment of the gospel. Amen? It's Christ. No form of Christianity or religion can substitute for Jesus Christ. All of these things, all of these images, everything that they were doing on this day pointed to Christ. He's the fulfillment of it all. Nor does Jesus say, if anyone comes to me, I will satisfy his every wanting desire. That's the distorted view today. It says, come to Jesus and he will give you everything you want. You heard that? He'll give you good health. He'll keep you healthy. And he'll make you wealthy. Just come to Jesus. <laughs> he'll meet all your materialistic desires. There's another lie from the pit of hell. Now there's another danger. There are numerous people who've been awakened to the conscious need for Christ. But that's as far as they go. They realize they're thirsty. They know they're thirsty. They know they need Him. But Christ not only said, come unto me, but He added, and drink. Many people come to Christ, they never drink. Many people come to church. Many people have their name plastered on the back of some pew that they purchased. And they make sure they sit in that seat week after week, month after month, year after year. They've never taken a sip. They don't know Him. They're dead. They're lost. You can have a spring-fed well in the midst of a camp of people that are dying of thirst, and if they don't reach down and pull up and drink, they'll die. They'll die. In Exodus 12, when the angel of death passed over those homes, God instructed the, 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 the man of the house, the head of the household, to apply something. What was it? Apply the blood of the lamb to the doorpost and the lentil. They had to take action. They had to do what they were instructed. God provided. He enabled. So, Christ saves none who do not receive Him by faith. Drinking here is a figurative expression. It signifies making Christ your own. Many come. Many, many, many come. And they never drink in Christ. And there's a reason for this. There's a reason, I'm going to quote William Hendrickson, great Bible commentator. He says, and I quote, In a sense, all men are thirsty. By nature, all lack the water of life. 
In another, th in another sense, those only are thirsty who've been regenerated and have received the inner call. Here again is the grace of God, the initiated work of the Holy Spirit. As a result of the operation of God's sovereign grace within their hearts, these feel the need of the spiritual water, end quote. So, although this loving invitation leaves all hearers responsible, only those given to Jesus by the Father will actually come and drink. We know this from John 6, verse 37. It says, all that the Father draw will what? They will come. Verse 44, but no one can come what? Unless they are drawn. Verse 65 again, chapter 6, no one can come. Most assuredly, this is why I said to you, no one can come unless the Father draws him. This is precisely why so many thirst, so many come, and so many don't drink. The parched man can only be satisfied, quenched if he drinks, if he partakes. And anything less is merely impulsive, and it's birthed out of emotion. A lot of emotionalism, amen? It's birthed out of emotion. Mankind thirsts for pleasure, success, fame, fortune, self-indulgence. rich young ruler. You know him? Remember him? He had it all. He was unsatisfied. You know what he realized? He realized he was thirsty. You know what he also realized? To be satisfied, you have to come to Christ. So he went to Christ. And he asked Christ. He said, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus told him, You know the commandments? Uphold the law. And he answered and said, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. What does that reveal? He's a liar. No one upholds the law. It's impossible. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure where? In heaven. And come. Take up your cross and follow me. Come and die. Come and lay down your life. Pick up your cross. They knew what it meant in this day to pick up a cross. To pick up a cross, you did it publicly. And you were led out to be crucified. They knew what it meant. Vivid imagery. Take up your cross. Follow me. But most people treasure, desire treasure here on earth, not in heaven. So they'll thirst, they'll come, but they'll never drink. Drink is that internal internal call. You come and you drink. You'll be forever satisfied. Forever satisfied. Those who come and drink truly believe and therefore they experience the satisfying results. And that leads to the outcome. They thirst. They come. They drink. They partake of Christ. They're in Christ. They're one with Christ. He's one with them. They died of their sins. They've repented of their, of their sin. They've turned from it. They've turned entirely to Christ because God has granted them the faith to do so. And in verse 38, He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of what? Living water. Living water. 
So a spring is therefore produced out of the birth that is described by Jesus to the woman at the well back in chapter 4, verse 14. Look at this. But whoever, Jesus said, drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. There's forever eternal satisfaction. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. We have to keep going back to the well. Once and for all satisfied, you keep going back to the well. Filled up, filled up, filled up. So in verse 38, he says, He who believes, believes is present tense. To believe is a grace gift. And the very reason they sense a thirst for living water in the first place. Now, he goes on, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, as the scripture said, is justified by a number of passages. I'm just going to look at a couple here. Psalm 46, verse 4. There is a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Look at this. God is in the midst of her. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. <clears throat> God shall help her. Just at the break of dawn. Isaiah 44.3 I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Isaiah 58.11 The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters what? They do not fail. They never fail. Now, let's not forget where Jesus is when he's speaking these words, okay? He was not in a pagan sanctuary. He was not in some pagan temple. He wasn't in a prison. He wasn't on Skid Row down here. He was not at the beggars at the gates of the city. He was in the temple. He was in the midst of religious activity. Amen? He was not addressing a company of, a company of uh, a licentious heathen here. This is the religious crowd. Remember, they thought they knew God. Jesus said, you don't know God. You do not know God. Thank you, brother. You by no, no means lose your reward, my brother. <laughs> he noticed that a brother was parched here. I got thirsty studying this all week. I'm serious. There were times I was saying, man, I need a glass of water. So the, gen the general idea, idea of the verse here is perfectly clear. Not only do those who drink from the fountain of Jesus Christ receive lasting satisfaction for themselves, which is everlasting life, that's salvation. That is salvation. And salvation is complementary. It's complete. You can't earn it. You can't add to it. It's complementary. It's a gift. Did you do anything to earn your salvation? Zip, nothing. Nothing. It's also complete. You can't add to it and it can't be taken away. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ once and for all and forever. Justified by faith. Declared free from all unrighteousness. Positionally perfect in Christ. Covered by the blood of Christ. God sees you as He sees His Son. The, righteous imputedness, the, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ placed upon your account. That's salvation. But in addition to that, that's chapter 4, verse 14. That's salvation. In addition to that, 
That abundant life, you know what it does? It bubbles up and it overflows. It bubbles up. It's the spring of life bubbling up unto everlasting life and then it comes out. It's the child of God by God's sovereign grace. He becomes a channel of abundant blessing to others. He becomes a channel of God's truth. Living water to the lost who need the gospel. The substance of which is Jesus Christ. He is the good news. As well as an overflowing to guess what? One another. The body of Christ. We've been gifted with spiritual gifts to minister to one another. We are the body. He's the head. We are the temple of the Most High. Amen? He does not dwell in temples made with hands. You're the temple. I'm the temple. When you focus on the source of life, brothers and sisters, life will flow out. Focus on the source. Focus on the spring. Life comes up, it goes out. You don't have to focus on what I'm doing or what I'm not doing. Am I being effective? Focus on the source. You will be effective. You will be effective. People who have influenced us the most likely didn't even realize that they were influencing you for Christ. Maybe on the surface of some level if they discipled you. But the majority of the people that influenced me, they have no idea. Many of them I've never met. Many of them actually been in the grave for three, four, five hundred years. <laughs> have influ influenced me greatly to run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I've never met him. I won't meet him until I get there. They had no idea what they were doing. More so, they had no idea what God was doing through them. Whatsoever. You know, conscious influence is actually prideful. If you're consciously aware of everyone that you have an impact on, that's pride. You're focused on you. That's focus on self. You've got to focus on the source. Amen? You focus on the source. It bubbles up and it flows out and it touches people and it gives people a drink. And you'll have someone bring you a cold bottle of water when you're thirsty too. It's been said that a river reaches places that its source never knows. Spring of water bubbling up from underground. We'll never see the end. We'll never see the ocean. The hole in the ground doesn't see the ocean. What's coming up out of the ground sees the ocean. Amen? Rivers are successfully persistent. They bubble up. They flow out. They hit obstacles. You know what they do? They found a way around them, don't they? Trees, rocks, boulders, they find a way around them. And they keep on trucking. The river may go out of, of, out of view. Drop 200 feet of waterfall. It goes out of view. It disappears. Only to resurface again. Broader, wider. Turning into lakes of provision and so on. That's what a river does. That's what a spring does. It provides... Life. Reading the biography, actually, I'm reading the diaries and uh, journals of David Brainerd. David Brainerd was a missionary to the Indians, suffered with tuberculosis, was driven with passion to reach the Indians for Jesus Christ, often rejected, often humiliated. He suffered with deep doubts of depression. He never let it get him down because he was focused on the source. 
If it weren't for Jonathan Edwards, who loved David Brainerd, Brainerd died when he was 29 in the home of Jonathan Edwards under the care of the daughter of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest theological, greatest intellectual mind that America has ever seen, compiled all of his journals, put them into a book form. If it weren't for Jonathan Edwards under the providential hand and care of God doing this thing, none of us would have any idea who David Brainerd is. And David Brainerd, in his life, that river of living water that flowed out of him has the greatest impact of missionaries than anyone else. The modern missionary, missionary movement. Incredible. When David Brainerd was suffering, when he was ministering, when he was persisting by the grace of God, he had no idea the impact that the spring of living water would have 260 years down the river. Amen? Somebody? No idea. And we're sitting here talking to him, talking about him today. And missionaries, when they face doubt and discouragement and despair, they go to the Word of God, and they also read David Brainerd's journals who pointed back to the well of living water. Christ. That's impact. That's influence. But unfortunately, some Christians are like the Dead Sea. <laughs> they take in, they take in, they take in. Nothing ever comes out. The reason nothing lives in the Dead Sea is because the Jordan feeds it and there's no outflow. It's dead. Many Christians smell like a polluted well, unfortunately. Right? Some Christians actually smell like a septic cistern, unfortunately. We want to pray for them. Those that we know are in Christ, we want to pray for them. Amen? Because they take in, they take in, they take in. Nothing comes out. They're stagnant. Stagnant storage tank. If you find that Christ's life is not flowing out, you're simply storing up, nothing's springing out, guess who's to blame? You are. If nothing's flowing out of me, guess who's to blame? I am. I have the life in me. He's bubbled up. I have everlasting life. There's been a cat put on the lid of the well. We've got to figure out what it is. A believer is never to be like a sponge. You ever smell the dirty dish rag? Walking through my kitchen with it, some, some nasty stench. You got this sponge, it's laying over in the corner of the sink. No one's touched it for days. The stench is bacteria. You can't see the bacteria. You can only smell it. My wife was gone for a week, that's why that happened. <laughs> <laughs> you get near it you discover what it is nobody wants to touch it you just take a step back and go ooh what is that it's that sponge for the Christian when you get that close and it stinks you take a step back you know what it is it's usually the stench of criticism it's the stench of arrogance it's the stench of backbiting complaining self-righteous arrogance We're not to be cisterns of stagnation. Polluted water. No vessel will ever overflow until it's full. Amen? And to be full, you have to be filled. 
You must be filled to be full. And when you're full, you overflow. Amen. And there can be no overflowing in your life until your life is filled with satisfaction and it will run over. But you must be satisfied in the source. If you're not focused on the source, you'll never be satisfied in the source. You'll be looking for satisfaction everywhere else but the source. Trials come up. Tribulations come up. Instead of going to the throne, you go to the phone. You've heard of that, right? People go to the phone. They start playing, you know what so-and-so did? I can't believe what so-and-so did. Go to the throne. Prayer. You have access to Almighty God. Direct. No operators, nothing. No, never being on hold unless there's unrepentant sin in your life, right? Repent of it. Straight to the throne. The order of Christ in the Scriptures never changed. You must first come and drink before the rivers of living water will flow up and out. So I must receive Him before I can give out for Him. Amen? You must receive Him before you can give out. So we must constantly re-examine ourselves, brothers and sisters, those of you that are in Christ, we must constantly re-examine ourselves. Are we filled with thoughts, attitudes, and emotions and desires that are purified and revived? We must test all things in light of scriptures, including our thoughts. If you begin with your thoughts and you nip it in the bud there, it won't come out of your mouth and it won't come out of your behavior. If you nip it there. It all starts up here. Between the ears. In my thinking. How am I thinking? Does it line up with Christ? And there's only one way to be successful in this. One way. And it's to be under the control of the resident power source. Under control of the resident power source. And that is point number three, which is the occupant. The occupant. Look at verse 39. Now... Again, verse 37, it was on that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now John, the Apostle John now interjects. He wrote this a number of years later, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's pointing out here what Jesus meant. It reads... But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So John is saying, or Jesus is saying, look, you will flow with rivers of living water, but not until you have the resource for those rivers, which would come seven months later in this case. Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had not yet descended. Why? Because Jesus had not yet ascended. To ascend, Jesus had to die. To ascend, you have to be resurrected. He died, He resurrected, and then He ascended. And then, the Holy Spirit fell. Producing, in His church, international ministry. International, empowered ministry. But before that could happen, Jesus had to die. And Jesus explained to his disciples that to his disciples that his death was a requirement. In John chapter twelve, verse twenty-three, Jesus answered them, saying, "The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified." 
Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and what? Dies. It remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So the work of the Spirit of Christ is to make the Word of Christ clear and satisfying to the soul. Clear and satisfying to the soul. We come to Christ to drink. What we drink is not some dry, lifeless, regulatory, powerless truth, but we drink in truth-soaked truth, life-giving spiritual truth, empowered by God. People who participate in the truth of God without the spirit of truth, they don't have God. The religious leaders of the day participated in the truth of God, they didn't know God. They knew a lot about God, they didn't know God. A lot of people know a lot about God, they don't know God. Why don't they know God? They don't have the spirit of God. In order to know God, you have to have the spirit of God. If you don't have the spirit of God, you don't know God. If you don't know God, you're not saved. These legalistic Jews were filled with the letter of the law. Without the spirit of truth. Romans 8 verse 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. He is not his. Holy Spirit's always existed, amen? He's always existed. He's a third person of the Godhead. God is everlasting. God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, He's everlasting. God the Son is the second person of the Trinity, everlasting. God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, is everlasting. He is God. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, they're one in essence and nature. God the Son and Holy Spirit, one in essence and nature. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. They are the same in essence or nature. Individual and personhood. In John 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, Jesus said, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send Him to you. Him who? Him, the Holy Spirit, who is God. Not it, Him. Him. So Jesus is saying it took the death, the resurrection, and the ascension to make Pentecost possible. Every believer had to go to Calvary and die before he could experience Pentecost. Amen? New life must be birthed. You have nothing to do with your physical birth. Amen? Nobody. You had no say-so in that. We have no say-so in the spiritual birth. That is a gift of God. Jesus said, unless a man be born from above, born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Well, how does that happen, Nicodemus said. He says, Jesus said, let me tell you. It happens like this. As the wind blows to and fro, you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. You understand that? I don't understand how that happens. That's how God says it happens. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. The question is, have you been born again? Are you certain that you've been born again of the Spirit of God? You're born with a nature that's separated from God. 
You have to be perfect to stand in the presence of God. That nature must be transformed. God transforms that nature. That's what it is to be born again. It's not something you do. You can't do that. Because you're dead in trespasses and sins. If you're dead, it takes the supernatural act of God to bring you to life. If you sit here today going, I don't think I'm born again, cry out to God for His mercy. That's why He has you here this morning, I hope. I hope that you didn't come here knowing that you're thirsty, not ready to drink. I hope that God initiated in you the realization of understanding that you're thirsty so that you would come and that you've come, you've heard the truth and you're ready to drink. Drink in Christ. Perhaps you only know about His Word. Perhaps it's revealed today that you only know about Him and you don't really know Him. You're carrying this burden of sin and guilt and shame and it's weighing you down. You, you want freedom from it. You know you're at war with God. Confess you're a sinner. Call out to Him for His mercy. And the hope is that He, he will indwell you with His Spirit and, and breathe new life into you. Come to Him. That's the invitation. The invitation goes out to all. Anyone, come. Come to Christ. You must have a relationship. This is not a religion. You must walk the Calvary road and die of your sin. And your self-righteous attempt of upholding God's law can't be done. It leads to misery and failure. Fall down and drink. Jesus said in Acts 1 verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He's speaking to his people, his church. So for the believer, if you're in Christ, we can clog the outflow. We don't want to clog the outflow, amen? We don't want to clog it. That will also cause misery. Great misery. Despair. Simple religious activity is what your life will become. Well, I have to do this. You know, I'm part of the church. Got to go do this. Then you put on the smile and bring your Bible, right? Amen, brother. No, we want an outflow of that truth. An outflow of the love of Christ. Things that will clog it. Number one, a love for the world. A love for the world. The, the, the world system that's contrary to Christ. That's set in opposition to Christ. Another thing that will, will clog it is, is toxic criticism, backbiting, gossip, thoughtless speech, careless behavior, being a sponge that smells like the world, amen? And then finally this, an unwillingness to face and judge the sin within me, within you where the Holy Spirit judges that sin and then you obey as he can fix as he points it out because God lives in you because these things will quench and grieve the Holy Spirit 1 Thessalonians 5.19 it's a command to the believer do not quench the Spirit do not quench the Spirit that's a command we're to be filled with the Spirit. That's also a command. Ephesians 4. Do not be drunk with wine which brings forth dissipation, but be ye filled with the Spirit. Why? Because you can. 
because he lives in. It must be filled up and you will overflow. Ephesians 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, here's some more cloggers, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Those are the plugs that will clog the well. We want to put those away from us. Amen? Let's put them away. And then the water in us, which has granted us eternal life, will now flow up and out. And it will impact other people. Most of whom you probably have no idea that you're impacting. Amen? Amen. Okay, we're gonna, I'm going to ask the gentlemen to begin to prepare for communion. And as they do... I want to read a couple things for you this morning. And they'll just they'll just pass it out and I just want you to listen to these two little stories here. The first, a man by the name of Roger Rose. Roger Rose faced deep sorrow as a child. Roger Rose had a younger brother. He was fatally injured in a tragic accident. A dirt road ran alongside of their home, and only on rare occasions would an automobile be seen on that road. But one day, as his brother was crossing on his bicycle, a car came roaring over a nearby hill and he was run over and killed. Roger said, Later, when my father picked up the mangled, twisted bike, I heard him sob out loud for the first time in my life. He carried it to the barn and placed it in a spot we seldom used. Father's terrible sorrow eased with the passing of time, but for many years, whenever he saw that bike, tears began streaming down his face. Since then, says Roger Rose, I have often prayed, Lord, keep the memory of your death that fresh to me. Every time I partake of your memorial supper, may my heart be stirred as if it occurred only yesterday. Never let the communion service become a mere formality, but always a tender and touching experience. William Criswell once wrote that the Lord's Supper, first of all, is the memorial to the atoning death of our Savior. He said there's many kinds of memorials on earth. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C., you've seen that there, you've seen the tall monolithic marble monument to the father of our country, the Washington Monument. In Egypt, you can still see many towering pyramids. Sometimes a monument will take the form of a mausoleum. In India, you will see the most beautiful mausoleum in the world, the Taj Mahal, built by Shah Jahan in memory of, the, of his beloved wife. But our Lord did not create a monument out of marble to bring us to the memory of our Savior's suffering in our behalf. In fact, this memorial is not in the form of any kind of structure. He did it in a prime, evil, fundamental, and basic way by eating and drinking. And this simple memorial is to be repeated again and again and again. The broken bread recalls for us his torn body. The crimson cup reminds us of the blood poured out upon the earth for the remission of sins. Never become callous. Never, may we never, may we never allow communion to become some little religious tradition. Amen? May we remember the price that was paid. Living water granted to you. Living water granted to me. 
in order that that living water would bubble up, flow up and out for His glory, for His namesake. Why? Because He's enabled you to do so by the presence and the person of His Holy Spirit. Amen, brothers and sisters? Allow the Holy Spirit to examine your heart, refresh you, remind you of what He did, what He does. The Apostle Paul said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. With the Lord Jesus on the same night in which He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in remembrance as a, as a body of believers, individuals saved by the grace of God. Let's partake together. In the same manner, He also took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. It was His blood poured out for you, for me. So together, let's remember the price that was paid. Glorious Father, we thank You. We thank You for the gift of Your Son our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank You for the glorious gift of Your presence in our lives. God the Holy Spirit, we thank You for quenching that untamable thirst once and for all and forever in Christ. And we thank You that You are the well that we keep coming back to in order to be filled so that your hand of grace and mercy and power will flow up and out of us. Reaching the lost with the gospel, the one gospel, the only gospel, the only truth. And at the same time, ministering to one another, washing one another, encouraging one another. We thank you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these dear people. Thank you for your glorious work in their lives. And may we not only individually, but corporately as a body of believers, glorify you in all that we do, in all that we say, in all that we think. May we keep short accounts, God, by your grace. May you keep us ever mindful of the living well and that which it produces, streams of living water. We thank you and we praise you together as we all say, in Christ's name, Amen.